0: As you may know, this is our last morning together for the semester. Don't care? No just sort of ambivalence? (laughs) Booze, cheers, nothing? (laughs) So I'm going to let you know we do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Makes me feel better, at least. I got up early for that. Uh, um, We want you to know that we do plan on meeting together next semester, and we plan on doing it once again on Tuesday mornings, and largely to do the same thing, to open the Bible together, uh, to read together, to discuss uh, what it means to live as men, um, joyfully obedient to God in all of life. Now, here's why we're going to do that. We think that basically regular Bible study with other Christians is just a healthy part of a spiritual diet. So in order to grow, it's sort of like, I mean, this is probably a bad analogy if you don't like vegetables, it's sort of like eating your vegetables. Hopefully you have a taste for vegetables, but either way, you probably know that for health you need to eat them. And for spiritual health, you need regular fellowship and you need regular intentional engagement in God's word as what we call an ordinary means of grace, an ordinary part of your life. So we're going to continue to meet next semester in order to feed you as well as we can on Tuesday mornings. In terms of all the details, things like what we'll be studying and uh, you know, changes to group dynamics, when we'll start back. We don't yet know those things. What we're going to do now is, uh, is begin to evaluate, really, with your help. So I know that you may know, if you're a table leader, that Pat has sent you an email requesting feedback, evaluation. Your words are not just sort of uh, uh, just glossy things that we sort of look at and discard. Those are very important to how we think about what we'll do next semester together. And then we'll pray. And we'll try to follow as best as we can where God is leading us. But let me say this, it really has been, for me personally, an honor and privilege to read Romans 6-8 through 8 with you men on Tuesday mornings this semester. And now not only do we come to the final week of the semester, but appropriately I think we come to the climax of all that Paul has said thus far. And we come to the climax, perhaps, of the letter to the Romans as a whole. Paul's going to begin our morning with these words. What shall we say to these things? To all the words, to all the admonitions, to all the realities, to all the fullness of who Jesus is in our lives and throughout all of creation, how is it that we should respond? What shall we now say as men? Let's read together now, asking God to show us through his servant Paul. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. The apostle writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we might get a glimpse of the fullness of what Paul has just told us this morning. Would you do that for us because you love us, not because we've somehow earned it by showing up early. Give it to us personally. Give it to us corporately, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, then let me remind you, we've been in Romans 6 through 8. Romans 8, and you may not have a Bible with you, but let me just, I'll just tell you, Romans 8, 1, begins with a judicial statement. Here's how Paul begins Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment of guilt, there is no punishment, either actively present in your life nor stored up for you somewhere in the future. For you falling short of the glory of God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how Romans 8 begins. Romans 8 ends with an interpersonal statement. For those who are connected to Christ, there is now no separation from him, no separation from his love. There is no condemnation, but even better, I think we could say, Paul would say, there is neither any separation. If you have been with us over the course of the semester, then you know that one of the big questions, maybe the uh, big question that Paul has been addressing is the question of the power of grace. Does grace really possess the power to displace, to remove the power of sin in the life of a people? To put it another way, how does the message that you are loved by God, how does the message that I am loved by God unto The death and resurrection of Jesus the Son through no merit of my own. How does that begin to produce radical obedience in my life as a person? And Paul's basic answer has been, not only are you loved unto the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Son, but you are also loved into the death and resurrection of Jesus the Son. So that your whole life now is bound to a new master, a new husband. A new older brother. You see, Paul's real answer, his basic answer to the question of how you change as a person, of how we change as people, of how life is transformed, his answer is an intensely relational answer. So that if we were to summarize it and perhaps even oversimplify it this morning, we might say it like this. How does the gospel change us? Well, really this. By belonging. We now belong to God, and that makes all the difference. I generally like, I'm not afraid to admit it, I generally like Pixar movies. Uh, Pixar is uh, a studio that makes animated films, so Toy Story, Up, uh, Cars, I say films just to make the whole thing sound more adult-like, helps me feel better. But the first Pixar movie, um, Toy Story, came out was when I was 16, so I didn't grow up on them, I don't know about y'all, but I grew up on the of the old Disney cartoon movies, as a parent now who um, is forced to take my kids to these other movies, I have come to uh, appreciate Pixar because if you've seen any of the movies, you know that they always, they are cognizant that adults have to be there too as they always give adults something to enjoy in the process. So a few years ago, I uh, took my oldest son to see Toy Story 3 when it came out. It's a great movie. I don't know if you've seen it. But at the end of the movie, as with a lot of Pixar films, there is a sentimental scene. And as I was watching it, I'll be honest, risk some transparency here among men, I felt my throat harden a little bit, my lips started quivering, and I thought, pull it together, man, this is a story about toys. (laughs) Then I thought, you know, I'm just going to look behind me to see how the rest of the audience is reacting, and so I turned around. And every adult that I can see is fighting back tears. I mean, wiping their eyes. And every little kid is, is, is sitting there with a clueless smile on their face, eating popcorn, utterly oblivious to the sadness of, of outgrowing their childhood. But the adults that I can see are just in emotional shambles. And none more than um, this huge, bald, tattooed guy in a tank top, 6'4", 250. And he is holding his wife's hand. And he is just weeping. And I'm thinking Pixar is just owning this guy. I mean, they've got, <laughs> they've got his heart in their hands. And as it turns out, it's sort of the theme of the whole movie. The theme of Toy Story 3, without giving anything away, because you might want to see it, is that being, being owned by someone is better than not being owned by anyone at all. Belonging to someone is better... Not belonging to anyone at all. So if you're familiar with any of the, the Toy Story movies or films, <laughs> you may know that Sheriff Woody has his owner's name, Andy's name, written onto the bottom of his right boot. It's permanently marked there. And that name reminds Woody that the meaning of his life is inextricably bound up with Andy's claim upon him. Woody belongs to Andy. And to Woody, that's not slavery. It's happiness. What Paul has been saying throughout Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that you belong to God. That means that your whole life, your attitudes, your actions, your outlooks, your behaviors is inextricably linked to God's claim upon you. And Paul is telling you that's not slavery. That's happiness. So the question becomes this. If all that's been true, if our life, if our joy, if our transformation now hinges on our vital relationship with God, on our union, our living union with Jesus Christ, then can anything interrupt? Can anything dissolve? Can anything unravel that relationship? In other words, can the relationship at all fall apart? And it brings us to our passage this morning. The short answer, the less than poetic answer that Paul is giving you is no. Paul says that separation from God is not possible for a Christian. Separation is not possible. Listen, there is only one kind of vital relationship with God, and that is a secure one. There is no such thing, Paul says, no such thing as an insecure relationship with God. Now, he says that here in many different ways in Romans 8. Let's look at those just for a moment. Just the first half of the passage first in verses 31 through 34. You'll notice here that the first half of the passage is once again dominated by judicial imagery. Paul returns to this over and over again. Just look at some of the phrases here in those first four verses. It's courtroom imagery. Paul says, on our behalf. He talks about being handed over. He says, bring any charge. Justify, condemn, intercede. One theologian summarizes it this way. He writes, God being for us means that the verdict he has already rendered in justification stands now as a perfect guarantee of vindication in judgment. Now, I recognize that that's a lot to take in at 730, even if you've had coffee. So let me summarize it this way. What he's saying is that the, like, declaring in Christ, when Paul declares in Christ that there is now no condemnation, Paul is not only saying that those words can never change, but that those words will one day be proven publicly when all things that are hidden, when all things that are now hidden come to light under the scrutiny of God the judge. And at that day, Paul says, no accusation from a devil or from a law or from your own conscience or heart, no accusation will, stand, will have any validity at all. Your verdict of innocence is utterly secure. Think about that. No accusation against you can stand. That is crazy. Now look at the next few verses, the second half of the passage, verses 35 through 39. In this part of the passage, Paul begins to list the current realities. Those things that for him were genuine perils, genuine trials in his life. Now he lists those challenges. They may be different for you. I assume that they are. For him, they were famine and nakedness and the sword and persecution, etc., And what he's doing there is he's saying that assurance at the last day and assurance in the present day means assurance for all days in between. Come what may, there is no such thing as not having assurance now. And look at what Paul says is the basis of that assurance. In other words, what should generate confidence and courage in you as a man? Is it the quality of your devotional life? Is it the moral stamina that you have as a father? or a husband, or a friend? Is it your success in business, economic prosperity? Is it your capacity to say I'm sorry and to go somewhere and to make amends for your mistakes? Paul says, no, none of those are strong enough. What is it that can sustain you in all the accusations and the trials against which one day you will be measured as a man? What can sustain you? Paul says, only the love of God in Christ only the love of God in Christ, which, get this, here's the best part, is equal to the love of the Father for the Son. Did you get that? I mean, how much does God love you this morning? How would you answer that question? How much does God love you this morning? Here's Paul's answer. Well, how much does the Father love the Son? How much does God the Father love his own Son? Don't... Don't miss the logic and incredulity of Paul's argument here, especially as it comes clear to us in verse 32. What is the deepest demonstration of God being for you? Paul says it's God giving his own son for you. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, do you doubt God's love for you? Well, of course you do. Every day you doubt it. Well, then here's what you do. You look at the cross. And at the cross, God gives up what is most precious to him. To get you for himself. Let's turn it around and do it this way. Here's the corollary To say that God does not love you is to say that the Father does not love the Son. If you can say that the Father does not love the Son, then you can say that He does not love you. But if there is hesitation in those words for you, then that hesitation is the proof of the very thing that you doubt. God does, in fact, love you. Can you say that the Father's love for the Son is insecure? Then neither can you say, Paul says, that God's love for you is insecure. And that is climactically what it means to belong to God, that you live and you move and you have your being in a love that absolutely will not let you go. Isn't that good news? Paul says it is. Now let me just leave you with a few implications from our passage this morning as we scatter and as we talk and as we leave for the semester. And I'm going to say briefly, three things I want to mention briefly about God's love before we leave this section of Romans 6 through 8. The first is this, God's love is corporately experienced. God's love is corporately experienced. Number two, God's love is courageously expressed. God's love is courageously expressed. And number three, God's love is comprehensively extended. Corporately experienced, courageously expressed and comprehensively extended. I promise brevity here. Number one, God's love is corporately experienced. Now, the way to say this is that God's love for us, while deeply personal, is really experienced by our life together in God's family. Now, why do I say this? Well, for two basic reasons. Every pronoun in the passage referring to us is a plural. Paul never says you, singular, or I. It's always a we or an us. And you may say, well, that just means... That he's talking to us as a corporate body of individuals. But the rest of Romans, the next eight chapters that fleshes this out, is about living this love together as a family. In other words, I need you to think of it this way. Don't think about your vital union with Christ as a cord. Think about it instead as a web. A web. In which we are all caught together with Christ at the very center. If you want to grow in the love of God, to know more of that love personally and individually, then you have to be vitally... Connected to those whom God himself loves. That is the church. The love of God is corporately experienced and known. Number two. The love of God is courageously expressed. Paul Look, this is maybe the main part. God's love should produce remarkable courage in us. Here's his testimony in this passage. We are loved by God in Christ. So what is there to fear? Bring it. And then he lists the biggest fears for him, doesn't he? We are loved by God in Christ, so what is there to fear? Forgive the gambling metaphor here, but it's like right now you're playing with house money. You're playing with house money. You're no longer exposed. The risk of you being cut off from the fullness of life has been renewed. And so Paul says, removed, excuse me, go and live courageously. Live generously, live freely, live sacrificially and creative in even radical ways, because you no longer carry with you. The burden of guilt and anxiety and worry and fear. Let me put it to you this way. I'm sure you've watched um, a thrilling movie that you've loved for the second or third time before, right? Or better yet, I I don't know if you're like me, but maybe you have one of your favorite uh, football games or basketball games recorded, and you'll watch it every now and then because you love the result or to remind you of the good times that used to be true years ago. Listen to me, how different, really, how different, think about this, how different is it, as a viewer, when you're watching a game that has suspense in it, and yet you already know the outcome? I mean, how different is that experientially, when all of a sudden, that fumble that happens in the third quarter, that you said some bad words, you know, some words that you regret at the time at the TV, and you threw things? Now, all of a sudden, it doesn't bother you as much. Why? Because you know that that fumble didn't change the outcome of the game. That doesn't mean the opposition is any less real. It just means this. The opposition does not prevail in the end. And you know that. You know that because the victory has been sealed in history. It happened. There were witnesses. You have a piece of the goalpost somewhere hanging in your living room. God's love is the same way. It has been sealed in history. By the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, there were witnesses so that God allows you to know the outcome, to see the end of the story now in the middle of history so that you can live without fear, without anxiety, without the burden of worry. Paul says, if God is for you, what are you really scared of? If God is for you, what are you scared of? God's love should produce remarkable courage in us. God's love is corporately experienced. It is courageously expressed. And finally, God's love is comprehensively extended. That is to say, in Paul's mind, the love of God becomes the paradigm for all of life. It becomes the paradigm for the way that you see everything else from what you do actively to what you suffer, even by no account of your own. Now, we see this in two places in our passage, okay? The first is from last week. You'll know this verse perhaps. In verse 28, Paul just says this, and we know that for those who love God, what? Some things. All things. And we know that for those who love God or are being loved by God, all things, not some things, all things work together for good. In other words, Paul says there, there is no thing that falls now for you outside the scope of God's love. There is no aspect of your life, no role that you play. No fear or sorrow that you face that is outside that scope. But the second is here in verse 37. Look there with me once again. Paul writes this. No, in all these things, you see the pattern here? (laughs) In all things? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Now, I mentioned this way back in the first week of our study. It is amazing just to think about for a second. What does it mean to say? That we are more than conquerors. That we're not just conquerors. But that we are actually, where you sit today that you are more than a conqueror? What does it mean to say that? And I think it's this. That we not only conquer that which opposes or challenges us. But even that which opposes or challenges us works for our good and God's glory in the end. So that there is nothing in all of life no pain, no sorrow, no trial, no challenge, no failure or disappointment, then we can ultimately point to one day and say, look there, that is the result of God's love failing. Paul says no. Everything that you will ultimately point to in life, you will look at and say, that is the result of God's love succeeding for me. Jada and I bought um, our first house, our only house, really eight years ago when we moved to Dallas December Marks our eight-year trek here. We bought a house in East Dallas, and uh, the man that sold it to us was a bachelor, so we figured that was the cause of it all. Um, No offense to bachelors. I'm sure you have a good eye for decorating. But he had done some very interesting things to the interior painting. So um, it, it was a very open floor plan. The first two rooms that you walked in when you walked in the front door was this sort of bright red, like bright Ole Miss red or Texas Tech red, you know, those sorts of colors. Bright red. Not, I mean, not terrible, right? You're okay with that. The kitchen, which is connected to those two rooms, was bright Tennessee orange. That's a color that's very close to my own heart, but not in the house. I mean, <laughs> next to the red. And then the bathroom off of those rooms uh, was bright blue, bright Kentucky blue. So you had these three colors. You had bright red. And bright orange, these weren't dull colors, and bright blue all together, and so we just thought this very bold and colorful, he's making a statement, um, and we don't really know why he did that, until one day the realtor showed us a picture of the house with the furniture in there. And one of the things that we noticed in that picture was that there was an oil painting, a medium-sized oil painting, hanging in the very center of the house. And the oil painting was a, was a painted picture of three horses. Guess what color the horses were? Red, orange, and blue. So you see by by actual deep intentionality for this young man, the thing that was hanging in the center of the house was what gave color to the rest of the house. Paul is not only saying that God's love for you hangs at the very center of it all, He's saying that God's love for you is that which colors the rest of your life comprehensively. The love of God in Christ has been written into every part of your life. Another way to say it is this. For a Christian, God's love is not not simply something that you look at. It is something that you look through. That you look through. In order to see everything else. In order to know how to live in order to know what it means to be loved by God, in order to trust God in the very life that he has given you, none of your circumstances are the result of God's love failing, even the painful ones. There are no accidental sufferings, no accidental joys. There are no twists of fate, however minor or major, in all these things, Paul says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for this, this particular passage. We don't know why it happens this way, but there are some passages in Scripture that seem uh, to be very vivid. And we thank you, Father, that, Paul, that you, you commissioned your servant, Paul, you empowered him to make your love for us vivid by his own rhetoric, by his own testimony. And we thank you, Father, that you have given this to us this morning. And we do pray, O oh Lord, as your people, that we would know How much you love us by virtue of how much you love the Son. Give us great assurance. Give us courage. Give us wisdom to see all of life connected to that love, O Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.